Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, Episode 8, The Defeat of Byzantium. In the last episode, we heard about the growing power of Saladin, which was temporarily curbed by a crusader victory at the Battle of Mongizar in 1177. But the crusaders knew that they were living on borrowed time, unless they could get more help from the West or find a better way of working with the Byzantines against Saladin. But in this episode, we'll hear how things only got worse when, in 1176, Byzantium suffered a great defeat at the hands of the Anatolian Turks at the Battle of Myriokephalon. This battle wasn't, in my opinion, the game-changer that the Battle of Manticurt had been, since Byzantium had already lost its great power status, but it was a significant setback for the Byzantine Emperor Manuel, who was not only the last competent emperor that Byzantium had, but also a good friend of the Crusaders, and had joined with the Crusader King Amalric for a joint attack on Egypt in 1169. So the decline of Byzantium meant that the Crusaders were becoming even more isolated. As before, I'll read extracts from my bridge version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The year 1176 was a turning point in the history of Byzantium. The Seljuk Sultan Kilij Arslan II had grown restive against the Byzantine Emperor. While Nuradin lived, he had been kept under control, for Nuradin had intervened in Anatolia in 1173 to prevent the Seljuks from swallowing the lands of the Danish men, Turks. But Nuradin's death removed this restraint on Kilij Arslan, and by the the end of 1174, the Seljuks had triumphed over the Danish men Turks. Kilij Arslan then turned against Byzantium. In the summer of 1176, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel determined to deal once and for all with the Seljuk Turks. Some slight successes the previous summer had encouraged him to write to the Pope to announce that the time was propitious for a new crusade. Now he would make the road across Anatolia safe forever, while an army under his cousin Andronicus Vatatzes was sent through Paphlagonia to capture the fortress of Dulnun, the Emperor Manuel himself led the Byzantine army, swelled by all the reinforcements that he could muster against the Seljuk Sultan's capital at Konya. Kilij Arslan, hearing of the expedition, sent to ask for peace, but the Byzantine Emperor Manuel no longer believed him. But early in September, the Byzantine expedition into Paphlagonia met with disaster before the walls of Nixar. The head of the Byzantine commander Vatatzes was sent as a trophy to the Seljuk Sultan. A few days later, the Byzantine Emperor Manuel, with the main Byzantine army, moved out of the Meander Valley, past the fortress that he had built at Sublaim the year before, and went round the top of the lake of Egridir into the hills that led up towards the great mountain range of the Sultan Darg. Heavy wagons containing siege machinery and provisions slowed its progress and the Turks had devastated the land through which it had to travel. The road led through a pass called Zibritsi by the Greeks with the ruined fort of Myriokephalum standing at the far end. There the Turkish army was gathered visible on the hillside. Manuel's more experienced generals warned him not to take his lumbering army through the difficult passage in face of the enemy but the younger prince 
princes trusted in their prowess and were eager for glory. They persuaded the Byzantine emperor to march on. The Seljuk Sultan had gathered troops from all his allies and vassals. His army was as large as the Byzantines, perhaps less well armed, but far more mobile. On the 17th of September, 1176, the Byzantine vanguard forced its way through the pass. The Seljuk Turks yielded before them to swing round into the hills and charge down the slopes into the pass as the main Byzantine army pressed along the narrow road. The Byzantine emperor's brother-in-law, Baldwin of Antioch, at the head of a cavalry regiment, countercharged up the hill towards the enemy but he and all his men were killed. The soldiers in the valley saw his defeat. They were so tightly packed together that they could scarcely move their hands. Brave leadership might still have saved the day, but Manuel's courage deserted him. He was the first to panic and fled back out of the pass. The whole Byzantine army now tried to follow him, but in the chaos, the transport wagons blocked the road. Few of the Byzantine soldiers could escape. The Turks, waving the head of the Byzantine commander Vitatsis before them, massacred the Byzantines as they pleased until darkness fell. Then the Seljuk Sultan sent a herald to the Byzantine emperor as he tried to rally his troops in the plain and offered him peace on condition that he retired at once and dismantled his two new fortresses at Subleum and Dorylaeum. The Byzantine emperor Manuel gratefully accepted the terms. His unconquered Byzantine advance guard came back safely through the pass and joined up with the pathetic remains that Manuel now led homewards, harassed by the Turks who could not understand Kilij Arslan's generosity. It's probable that the Sultan did not believe the completeness of his victory. His main interest was also now in the east where he was threatened, and he was not at the moment interested in expanding into Byzantine territory. All he wanted was a peaceful border with the Byzantines. The Emperor Manuel, however, was well aware of the significance of this disastrous defeat, which he himself compared to that of Mansica just over a century before. The great army that his grandfather and father had built up had suddenly been destroyed. It would take many years to rebuild it, and indeed the Byzantines never succeeded in rebuilding it. There were troops enough left to defend the Byzantine frontiers and even to win a few petty victories in the next three years, but never again would the Byzantine emperor be able to march into Syria and dictate his will over the Crusaders at Antioch. Nor was there anything left of Byzantine prestige, which had in the past deterred Nuraddin at the height of his power from pressing too hard against the Crusaders. For the Franks, the disaster at Myriokephalum was almost as fateful as for Byzantium. Despite all the mutual mistrust and misunderstanding between the Byzantines and Crusaders, the Crusaders knew that the existence of the Byzantine Empire was an ultimate safeguard against the triumph of Islam. However, although Manuel's army had perished, the Byzantine fleet was still strong, and he was ready to use it against Saladin. Once again, in 1177, he promised to send it in support of a Frankish attack against Egypt. During that summer, there had been rumours of a new crusade from the west, 
Both Louis VII and Henry II of England were said to have taken the cross, but in fact only one Western potentate appeared in Palestine. In September, while King Baldwin was recovering from a bad attack of malaria, Philip, Count of Flanders, landed with a considerable following at Acre. He was the son of Count Thierry and of Sibylla of Anjou, and the Franks, remembering his father's four crusades and his mother's pious love of the Holy Land, hoped great things of him. The news of his coming brought four high-born ambassadors from the Byzantine emperor, offering money for an Egyptian expedition, and on their heels a Byzantine fleet of 70 well-fitted men of war arrived off Acre. King Baldwin, too ill to fight himself, hastened to offer him the regency if he would lead an expedition into Egypt. But Philip hesitated and prevaricated. He had come, he said, first merely for the pilgrimage, next that he could not assume such responsibilities alone, and when the king suggested that Reynald of Chatillon should be joint leader, he criticised Reynald's character. It was pointed out to him that the Byzantine fleet was there ready to cooperate. He merely asked why he should oblige the Byzantines. At last he revealed that his only object in coming to Palestine had been to marry off his two cousins, the princesses Sibylla and Isabella, to the two young sons of his favourite vassal, Robert of Bethune. This was more than the barons of Jerusalem could bear. We thought you had come to fight for the cross and you merely talk of marriages, cried Baldwin of Ebelin when the count made his demand before the court. Thwarted and furious, Philip prepared to depart again. The wrangling between the crusaders had shocked the Byzantine ambassadors. It was clear that there was going to be no expedition to Egypt. The Byzantines were waited about a month, then disgustedly sailed away with the fleet to give warning to their master of the stupidity of the Franks. The next development for the Crusaders happened in the spring of 1179 when the seasonal movement of flocks of sheep began and King Baldwin set out to round up the sheep that would be passing towards Banyas from the plains of Damascus. Saladin sent his nephew Farouk Shah to see what was happening. He was to inform his uncle by pigeon post of the direction taken by the Franks. On the 10th of April, Farouk Shah suddenly came upon the Crusaders in a narrow valley in the forest of Banyas. The king was taken by surprise. He was only able to extricate his army owing to the heroism of the old constable Humphrey of Turon, who held up the Muslims with his bodyguard till the royal army had escaped. Humphrey was, however, mortally wounded. He died at his new castle at Hunin on the 22nd of April. Even the Muslims paid tribute to his character. His death was a terrible blow to the Crusader kingdom. Saladin followed up the victory by laying siege to the castle at Jacob's Ford, but the defence was so strong that he retired after a few days to encamp before Banyas. From there he sent raiders into Galilee and through the Lebanon to destroy the harvests between Sidon and Beirut. King Baldwin gathered together the forces of the kingdom and summoned Raymond of Tripoli to join him. They marched up through Tiberias and Safed to Toron. There they learnt that Farouk Shah and a party of raiders were coming 
coming back from the coast laden with booty. They moved north to intercept them in the valley of Marj Ayun, the Valley of Springs, between the Litani River and the Upper Jordan. But Saladin had noticed from an observation post on a hill north of Banyas that the flocks of sheep on the opposite side of the Jordan were scattering in panic. He realised that the Frankish army was passing by and set out in pursuit. On the 10th of June 1179, while the royal army routed Farouk Shah at Marj Ayun, Count Raymond and the Templars moved on a little ahead towards the Jordan. By the entrance of the valley, they came on Saladin's army. The Templars joined battle at once, but Saladin's counterattack drove them back in confusion on Baldwin's troops. These two were forced back, and before long, the whole Crusader army was in flight. The King and Count Raymond were able, with some of their men, to cross the Litani and shelter at the great castle of Beaufort, high above the western bank. All the men left beyond the river were massacred or later rounded up. Some of the fugitives did not stop at Beaufort but made straight for the coast. On the way they met Reynald of Sidon with his local troops. They told him that it was too late so he turned back though had he advanced to the Litani he might have saved many other fugitives. Among Saladin's prisoners of war were Oddo of Saint-Armand, Grand Master of the Temple, whose rashness had been the prime cause of the disaster, as well as Baldwin of Ibelin and Hugh of Galilee. Hugh was soon ransomed by his mother, the Countess of Tripoli, for 55,000 Tyrian dinars. For Baldwin of Ibelin, Saladin demanded 150,000 dinars, a king's ransom. So highly did he rate Baldwin's importance. After a few months, Baldwin was released on the return of a thousand Muslim prisoners and on his promise to find the money. It was proposed to exchange Odo for an important Muslim prisoner, but the Grand was too proud to admit that anyone could be of equal value to him, so he remained in a dungeon at Damascus until his death the following year. Saladin did not follow up his victory by an invasion of Palestine, perhaps because he'd heard of the arrival there of a great company of knights from France, led by Henry II of Champagne. Instead, he attacked Baldwin's castle at Jacob's Ford. After a siege of five days, from the 24th to the 29th of August, he succeeded in mining the walls and forcing an entrance. The defenders were put to death and the castle was razed to the ground. The French visitors would not go out to try to save the castle and soon returned home. Once more, the Crusaders from the West had been utterly ineffectual. The next development was a surprise. After the Egyptian fleet had carried out a successful raid in October on the shipping in the Christian port of Acre, and after a great Muslim foray into Galilee early in the new year, King Baldwin of Jerusalem sent to ask Saladin for a truce. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Thank you. 
Saladin agreed. There had been a terrible drought throughout the winter and early spring, and the whole of Syria was faced with famine. No one desired raids that might damage the meagre harvests, and Saladin had also probably decided that he should conquer Aleppo before Jerusalem. A two-year truce was fixed by a treaty signed by representatives of Baldwin and Saladin in May 1180. Tripoli was, however, excluded from the truce, but after the Egyptian navy had raided the port of Tortosa and Saladin had been checked in a raid on the Bukaya, he made a similar treaty with Raymond of Tripoli. In the autumn, Saladin marched northwards to the Euphrates, where the Turkish Autokid prince Nureddin of Kaifa, who had become his ally, had quarrelled with with the Seljuk Turkish Sultan Kilij Arslan. Nureddin had married the Sultan's daughter but neglected her in favour of a dancing girl. On the 2nd of October 1180, Saladin held a meeting near Samosata. The Turkish Autokid princes were there and as well as envoys from Kilij Arslan and they solemnly swore to keep peace with one another for two years to come. Meanwhile, with the Crusaders, King Baldwin spent the respite in an attempt to build up a Christian front against Islam. William of Tyre, Archbishop since 1175, went to Rome to a Lateran Council in 1179, and on his way back he visited Constantinople during the last days of the year. The Byzantine Emperor Manuel was as courteous and friendly as ever, but William could see that he was a dying man. He had never recovered from the shock of the defeat of Myriocephalon, but he still showed great interest in Crusader matters, and William stayed there for seven months. He was present at the great ceremonies when Manuel's daughter Maria, a spinster of 28, married Rainer of Montferrat, Sibylla's brother-in-law, and Manuel's son, Alexius, aged 10, was betrothed to marry the princess Agnes of France, aged only nine. He returned with imperial envoys as far as Antioch, the Armenian prince Rupin was eager to strengthen his alliance with the Crusaders. Early in 1181, he came on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and there he married the Lady Isabella of Turon, the daughter of Stephanie of Outre-Jordain. Even the Syrian Jacobites proclaimed their loyalty to the united Christian cause when their patriarch, the historian Michael, visited Jerusalem and had a long interview with the Crusader king. There were also false hopes of an ally from the east. Since 1150, a letter purporting to be written by the legendary but completely fictional Christian ruler called Prester John, who was thought to live somewhere in the Asian steppelands, had been circulating throughout Western Europe. Though it was almost certainly the forgery of a German bishop and the whole story was utterly ridiculous, its account of the priest-king's wealth and piety were too good not to be believed. In 1177, the Pope had sent his doctor Philip with a message asking for information and for help. It seems that Philip ended his journey somewhere in Abyssinia, but he had no concrete result. But still no powerful king came from the West, and on the 24th of September 1180, the Crusaders lost their most powerful ally when the Byzantine Emperor Manuel died at Constantinople. He had genuinely liked the Crusaders and had genuinely worked for their benefit, except when it had clashed with the interests of his empire. He had been a brilliant and impressive man, 
but not a great emperor, for his ambition to dominate Christendom had led him into adventures that the Byzantine Empire could no longer afford, and in a long series of commercial concessions made to the Italian cities like Venice in return for immediate diplomatic advantages, he had sapped the economic life of his subjects, and in consequence the Byzantine treasury would never be full again. The splendour of his court had dazzled the world into the belief that the Byzantine Empire was greater than in fact it was. His son succeeded him and became Alexius II, but he was only 11 years old, and in 1182 he was deposed by Andronicus Comnenus, who could not prevent a massacre of the Italian merchants in Constantinople, a crime that was to encourage Venice to look for the conquest of Byzantium rather than its cooperation. Andronicus's reign was fraught with problems. He realised the dreadful impression made in the West by the massacre of 1182, and not only hastened to make a treaty with Venice, in which he promised a yearly indemnity as compensation for Venetian losses, but he also sought to placate the Pope by building a church for the Latins in Constantinople, and he encouraged Western merchants to return. But the main enemies of Byzantium were the Hohenstaufen German emperor, and the King of Sicily, and in 1184 an ominous marriage took place between the Emperor's son Henry and William II's sister and heiress Constance. Knowing that the Sicilians and Germans were thereby united and certain to attack him soon, Andronicus wished to be sure of his eastern frontier. He saw that Saladin, was in the ascendant there, so entirely reversing Manuel's policy, he made a treaty with Saladin, giving him a free hand against the Crusaders in return for his alliance against the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia. It seems that details of the divisions of future conquests and spheres of influence were planned, but the treaty with Saladin came to nothing, for Andronicus, fearful of his position at Constantinople, began to take repressive measures that increased in ferocity until no one in Constantinople felt safe. Not only did he strike at the aristocracy, but even merchants and humble workmen were arrested by his police on the flimsiest suspicions of conspiracy, and they were blinded or sent to the scaffold. When, in August 1185, a Sicilian army landed in Epirus and marched on Byzantine Thessalonica, Andronicus panicked. His whole Wholesale arrests and executions drove the people of Constantinople into revolt, and this broke out when an elderly and inoffensive cousin of the emperor's, Isaac Angelus, succeeded in escaping from his jailers to the altar of the great church of St. Sophia and appealed for help there. Even his own bodyguard deserted Andronicus. He tried in vain to flee across to Asia, but he was captured and paraded around the city on a mangy camel and then tortured and torn to death by the furious mob. Isaac Angelus was then proclaimed 
the emperor of Byzantium, he restored some sort of order and made a humiliating peace with the king of Sicily, but he was utterly ineffectual as a ruler. The ancient empire of Byzantium had become a third-rate power, and the balance of power in the whole of the Middle East was shifting ever more rapidly against both the Byzantines and the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about Saladin and his continuing rise to power. (laughs) 